If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of In the Details, where today I'm talking to Dr. Sean A. Robinson, author of Dr. Dyslexia Dude, a title that caught my ear and caught my eye, but I'm looking forward to this conversation. I have to tell you, Shauna, I'm looking forward to having a conversation with you because we have a nephew of mine who has dyslexia and I have been on the journey seeing this unfold for him and coming across your work was really fun and it was exciting also. But having this conversation, I look forward to diving in deeper to the work that you're doing so we can educate more people on what it's like for folks to live with dyslexia and how we can support them. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. <laughs> So, uh, as I mentioned just briefly, I have a nephew who has dyslexia. And so when we found your doctor's dyslexia dude, I was like, wait, this guy's making dyslexia cool. What is going on here? <laughs> and my, my sister is a fan also, but I would love to hear your journey of what it was like, you know, what brought you to the work that you're doing today? And why are you so passionate about educating young children and adults about dyslexia? Yeah. So, you know, my journey is probably very similar to many students, adults, you know, have dyslexia, the struggle's real, right? The lack of access to effective instruction. It could be a lot of things, you know, variables that go into it. For me, um, I wasn't diagnosed till I was uh, going into my uh, senior year of high school. I had a professor uh, by the name of Dr. Robert T. Nash who diagnosed me and said I was one of the most illiterate kids he's ever met in his life and that I was failed by the system and that I had a gift to offer the world and he was going to teach me how to read. And uh, I graduated high school reading at an elementary level. So, you know, I was literally behind, you know, from the start, you know, here I am, 18, elementary reading level, had no hope, had no aspirations. You know, I had a lot of great teachers in high school. Um, I got sent to an alternative high school for two years where they send the you know, trouble kids. I had some great teachers there who I love to death. But the thing that was missing throughout my K-12 journey was reading. No one really taught me how to read. You know, they taught me how to love myself, which, you know, is half the battle. You know, you have to love yourself in order to, to make, you know, moves. And so, um, but again, no one was teaching me how to read until uh, my mom found the professor. And then after I had graduated high school, I started his summer uh, literacy program literally like a week after I graduated. So here I am, 18, immature, you know, angry, all the emotions going through and, you know, I didn't really care about learning just because, you know, I failed so many times of learning. And again, once he taught me how to read, I just became a sponge. And I just absorbed as much knowledge as I could from him and from, you know, the environments that I was placed in. And Wait, so I, you resisted learning at first, but then you became a sponge. And what do you think was that internal shift that caused it? Him noticing and, and recognizing this in you and then being able to identify it with you? Or what was that? What do you think yeah, caused that shift? Yeah, I think it's just the fact that, you know, he taught me how to read and he saw something in me. Gave me life, right? Because uh, at that point, I was just a prisoner of my own mind. Like, you know, I was, you know, just trapped. And so he really had the key to unlock that gift I had. And so uh, he just taught me how to read. And then I started, you know, believing in myself and becoming confident. And then I started to really, you know, believe that I could do things. 
And then from that point on, it just it just became, you know, me against the academy. And so I just kept persevering like a little train. Choo, choo. <laughs> you know, I just I just kept moving. I just yeah. uh, I spent the next 18 years getting my degree, six years of undergrad degree, uh, five years at a master's and seven years, my PhD straight through nonstop. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. That is a lot to accomplish, especially at 18, where at that point, you know, you could have been over it like that. That's OK. I don't need I don't want this. But something inside of you just it was like a light switch. It sounds like it just as soon as you started to unlock it the way you described it, you had that key that there was going to be nothing that could get in your way <laughs> to pursuing yes. all. Of it. That's amazing. I yeah. I do remember early on when my nephew was maybe five or six years old. And they were teaching them like basic phonics, yes. how to blend some words. Yes. And I don't remember his exact words, but I remember my sister sharing this with us that it was something along the lines of like, my brain doesn't work that way. He was trying to verbalize, like, I don't understand what you're saying. That doesn't work here. It's not clicking for me. So however he said it, he just, he recognized very clearly that he was not learning the same way the other kids were and that something inside of him was not allowing him to do that. Do you ever remember feeling something similar as you were going K through 12 that, hey, like it's, there is something going on inside of me and you, you went undiagnosed for so long. I'm just wondering if it was something that you noticed in yourself before uh, the professor came and helped you. Yeah, I always felt different because I had a difficult time, you know, not just reading, but spelling my own name, too. Like, so I always had a, a difficult time, um, you know, trying to attack words that were, you know, on print mm -hmm. and or even, or even spelling, too. So I always knew that I struggled with reading like it was just I, I'm, I'm inside of me. I knew it. You know, I, I felt different, you know. Um, and I remember also I, I didn't know this, that. I, as we started learning, as he was experiencing this, as you just mentioned, like writing your name. So dyslexia, people may just think, oh yeah, that's reading, but obviously reading and writing go together because your brain is mixing up the letters. And so as you're trying to process the letters, even trying to process and then write them down flips or mixes up as well. And, and it's not just, okay, what way does a letter go? But it's also sometimes the um, handwriting being legible because you're trying to get that group. I mean, what are some ways I, I saw somewhere that you wrote, you know, people with dyslexia can thrive when they have the right tools, when they have some, the right support, people are noticing that in their children or in a child, what are some early right tools and support that they can start to implement to help them? You know, the professor taught me how to read. It was genius. You know, one of the things he said is that we have to allow people to understand uh, sounds, right? everybody's name has sounds in it, right? You could have, you know, five letters in your name, but you know, maybe three sounds or four sounds, right? Because two letters, two letters can make one sound. So one thing he always did was have us practice on our name first, you know, mm -hmm. like, Sean, how many letters do you have? How many sounds do you have in your name? So I think the biggest thing is just really helping students appreciate sounds in our language. Because again, if we both turned off our screen, we're only going to hear what? sounds voice right and so again that's one thing uh, that we i try to encourage students to do is to um really just think about sounds and yeah. uh, um have appreciation of of sound so i know we probably won't be able to see this but i'm gonna walk you do something real quick is that okay yeah let's do this all right can you see uh my screen yes all right so think about this 
the dictionary has been along for how long? Ever. 1800, right? It's going to be <laughs> here before we were born. It's going to be here after we die. Like it's a low cost, high impact resource that many people don't know how to use. And it's one of the great, great resources that it's underutilized. And so if we see here, right, on the right-hand side, this teaches us the sounds that the letters make and also the pronunciation. So if we're, if we're walking through a student, I'll say, okay, what's the first sound that we hear in the word loquacity? And they would say what? Oh, right? And then I'll say, okay, what's the second sound? Oh. What's the third sound? Qua. And then s, a, t, e. Loquacity. So then students can really start understanding not just the sounds that letters make, but also syllable divisions, right? And then it just having appreciation of sounds. With, that's what Dr. Nash did to me. Like literally, he studied the uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary for 30 years of his life and developed a system, a guidebook that goes with the dictionary. And so from 1996, when I first met him until now, I've been studying this thing over 26 years of dictionary. And wow. uh, when he passed away in 2017, he signed over his work to me and told me to continue his work. So all I do is study the dictionary. I love the dictionary. It's yeah. one of the most um, fascinating books out, out in, in the universe. And when students say, hey, Dr. Robinson, when I'm at doing, you know, presentations or vis school re uh, visits, they ask me, what's your favorite book to read? And I tell them the dictionary. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's full of knowledge, right? It, yes. teaches, it teaches us everything we need to know about linguistics. Yes. Right? We can also talk about the definition of the word, right? Both of us are being very talkative right now, right? Like, yes. we're having a We actually played a game at, our, at the dinner table when I was living with my sister at the time where we had a dictionary. We had a children's dictionary. And at the table, we would bust it out and we would go to a random page and a random word. And we would just say the word and we were learning what is the definition of this word. And it was interesting because, you know, it could be a simple word like library. Well, how do you describe library? Like, how do you define that? And then to your point, looking at it and seeing how they, it breaks it down for us. So we can phonetically figure out the words that I, I've never heard before. You're right. It is one of the best books because you're constantly learning. There are a ton of words that we don't know. Right. But, but I love how you mentioned that because what I noticed is one of the barriers when you, you know, identify as having dyslexia and you're diagnosed with dyslexia is it does take the joy away from reading. And there's so much joy in reading and escaping to other places and hearing stories. And I mean, I was not a reader growing up, not until I was an adult did I actually get into reading. But because if you have that as a barrier and you're missing that joy, how can we still expose our children or adults who are still struggling to learn the linguistics and the sources? I will tell you, my nephew fell in love with Audible and I'm like, yes, yes to ear reading and also following along. What are some ways that you have introduced children or helped them to find that joy in reading as they struggle in finding their way with dyslexia? The dictionary. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I work with elementary school kids, middle school kids, adults, and there's a uh, Webster's Collegiate Dictionary for elementary school kids. And not only does it help you understand language linguistics, but they have pictures to it, too, right? That's associated, yep. like you said. And so I just think that teaching a student at a young age the appreciation of language and sounds, but also teaching them phonetics, you know, and teaching them the dictionary builds three things, confidence, independence, 
and it empowers them, right? It allows them to take control of their own lives and allow them to, you know, not be scared of opening up a dictionary to find the word, have a conversation about the word, try to spell the word, right? And I think, you know, most most students I work with at first are, are terrified of a dictionary because the very first step is understanding alphabetic principle, right? You have to A, B, C, you have to figure out what letter comes after which letter. And so that can be very frightening for anybody who doesn't who struggles with spelling, right? But then you, you add dyslexia to it, it becomes another barrier in a sense. So the very first step is teaching them just to understand alphabetic principle, sounds, and then boom, like once they get it, the light just clicks and they just take off running. And so I'm a big fan of the dictionary. I think, like I said, it's one of the most underutilized resources in public education or even public spaces too, libraries. Like you said, think about how many dictionaries are in libraries. Yes, exactly. Right? And students don't utilize them, either public libraries or school mm-hmm. libraries, private schools, colleges, you know, even maybe boys and girls clubs, right? Like they're, if you have a bookshelf, most likely you're going to have a dictionary on your bookshelf. If you have a device in your hand, you have a dictionary Dic- at your fingertips. There, there you go. See? <laughs> so what- we're in an age where like, you can't say you don't know. You can't say you don't know. You have so many resources at our fingertips. Man, and, that is. And, and, the, and the cool thing about it too, is that you could talk about when the word first came out. You could talk about the etymology of the word. So you can start talking about the roots. So you start giving it like a little history. So like, this is all online and it's free. Yeah. Like it doesn't cost you anything. All you got to do is type in Webster's dictionary and boom. Yeah. There you go. Um, panage. Um, panage. Like think about how many kids love airplanes, right? Mm-hmm. Look at the definition of the word, the tail assembly of an aircraft. Mm-hmm. So you can literally have conversations with students about language, not just how to pronounce it. Um, panage. Right. But you could talk about also the definition, you know, as they get a little older, you could talk about the etymology. Right. It's a feather of an arrow. Like you can just you can have it's a so field. much more than words. Right. There's yes. so much depth and story behind and understanding. I mean, you're making me want to go look up some words and figure <laughs> find oh, out. What the yeah, I mean, are. I'm a dictionary nerd and I, I don't even <laughs> care. Like I tell students, like, look. If you want to write your own narrative, like particularly students in special ed who have dyslexia and you want to shift your mind from a deficit, you know, being able to write your own narrative, you got to get into the dictionary. You got to have appreciation of language because at the end of the day, either somebody is going to write your narrative for you, right? If they write it for you, it's not going to turn out well, right? Or you write your own narrative and you take control of your own life, your own destiny, right? Mm -hmm. And that's yes. what the mental shift is. Like, you got to, like, look, either want to feel sorry for yourself or do you want to say, you know what? I'm tired of being tired. I'm tired of feeling less than. I'm tired of feeling like I can't do it. I'm tired of hearing all the negative things that people have told me or teachers or, or kids bullying me. I'm tired of feeling stupid. Like, you're not stupid. You just haven't had the right instruction and you mm-hmm. haven't been provided access to tools that are going to allow you to be independent. Dictionary is independent. Like, like then, like you said, all you gotta do is pull up your cell phone, a tablet, a computer, go to Webster's Dictionary, and boom. The only thing that you need to know is the symbols. That's it. Because and now they have the sound button that will help you to hear and place those syllables and sounds with the letters that you're seeing. Sometimes. So the thing is that you can hit it. So you'll say for your empanage, you bring up in syllables, but still. If you saw the A with two dots, you wouldn't know what that meant, right? A Absolutely user. Not. 
right? the upside and down E? Nope. It, it, see, <laughs> see, and the, you wouldn't know that the, the G makes what's the G makes what sounds? Yeah, the Z and that H, H mm-hmm. together, right? Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. again, if you don't see a letter here or sound after the the G, then we know that E is what silent. Silent. Mm-hmm. So again. A lot of things like you just got to know how to use it. And once you know how to use it, man, you, you just become like. Mm, well, I want to dive in a little deeper to that mental shift. There are so many ways that you can bridge maybe from where you are of not knowing something, any information, right? We're not just talking about being dyslexic. We're talking about in general, you can bridge the space where you are now of not knowing how to do something and get into action by just accessing tools and support, right? So in this case, we are talking about the dictionary. It's a great place to start, but there are a lot of internal barriers that get in the way of people really finding the tools that they need and, and obviously taking the action, right? Because you can give someone a ton of tools, but if they're not going to use them, then nothing's going to change. So what was that internal, I guess we'll say like, what came up inside of you? What was that resilience muscle that you flexed? And how did you build that as you were overcoming this challenge of like, you know, being an 18 year old reading at an elementary school level, what was it inside of you that helped you really get out of a victim mindset and press forward? You know, I just think, you know, the people that pour love into me, uh, you know, I don't know, I just say, look, man, either do it or you don't do it. I mean, it's just that it's two choices. Either you're going to, you know, put all your energy into it and move forward, or you're going to pack your bags and go home and you can feel sorry for yourself. I mean, that was kind of like the mentality they had. It was like, look, this is nothing personal. Like either you're going to do it or you're, or you're not mm-hmm. like that's, that's how Dr. Nash and some of the upperclassmen, you know, treated me, you know, but it wasn't like a, it was a place of love, right? It wasn't like, mm-hmm. you know, a place that they wanted to try to put me down, but they were like, look, we know how you feel. We know the struggles that you had. And so either you're going to take what we were teaching you and you're going to listen and you're going to apply it, or you're going to just continue to go in a circle. And so mm-hmm. I think once I really listened to them and really heard what they were saying. I just became, a, again, a sponge. And I just started to um, think more critically about how the world would treat me mm-hmm. or respond to me if I was continued to stay in that illiterate world, right, where I was illiterate. And then also as a man of color, how would I would be responded to? So I just became conscious once I started to learn to read. And, you know, I had professors in my undergrad that told me literally I should not be in college. They said, why are you here? Because you can't read. And or you should do something different, right? And so then also in my PhD program, I had two professors that literally failed me and told me I should do something different too. So always throughout my course of my journey, I've heard people tell me what I shouldn't do or what I can't do, um, <laughs> even as a professional, but I don't, I don't pay attention to that stuff. You know, mm. when I was going through it at the time, it, you know, as a college student or a master's or a PhD, yeah, it hurt. I mean, I'm human, you know, I have emotions, uh, but you know, I couldn't, you know, allow that to uh, control my narrative or, you know, and so at, at this stage in my life at 44, I can say this with confidence. I, I've won. Mm. I have nothing to prove anymore to anybody. Like I literally have nothing that I need to prove anybody. I don't need any permission from anybody besides my wife and my, and my boys and my mother or mother-in-law. Like I don't, I don't need to please anybody. Like mm-hmm. I spent years trying to either catch up or try to fit into a system or circles. Right. And that wasn't very healthy for me. And so I just came to a point now where I'm like, you know what? I've won. Mm. I've, I've, I've beat many odds that most 
people had never thought I'd make it this far. You know, I have over 40 uh, publications, uh, kids' books, peer-reviewed journals. I've been to the White House twice. My work has been disseminated globally. Yeah. Like, I don't go out on, like, social media and brag about it. Like, that's not who I am. I just, I've won. Like, for yeah. somebody that started in special ed, who graduated high school, reading at an elementary level, to having the journey that I've been on, the experiences, I've been blessed and fortunate in my higher power. God, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm literally, if, if I die tomorrow, I've lived a good life. Like, I'm, I'm happy. I'm blessed. You know, I'm, I'm healthy. My mind's healthy. Um, yes. Um, but like you said, you won. And, and won. but you won. And I agree. I think anybody listening to this right now absolutely stands in agreement with that with you. Um, but it is about noticing the things that you are sick and tired of dealing with choosing to change those things to press through and to keep going. And you didn't just, you know, complete high school and then complete your bachelor's. Like you continue to keep going after you finish your bachelor's. Why did you keep going? Like what was in your mind? What were you trying to accomplish at that point that you feel like you hadn't accomplished yet just by getting through college and undergrad? Just more education. But I think, you know, somebody said this to me after uh, while I was in my master's program and I never really thought about it until like, you know, over the last couple of years. And she said this to me. She was like, what do you have to prove? So I think at that stage in my life, I was trying to prove to prove myself to people. Right. Like, but more it wasn't coming from a place of health. Right. It was more of a place of I'm going to show you. Nanana boo boo, you know, <laughs> look, you know, like it, it wasn't a healthy yeah. mindset, like, you know, but then once I've accomplished things, you know, my, my good friend and pastor and my wife are like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, w w what do you have to prove anymore to anybody? Like, what, what do you have to accomplish? Like, mm -hmm. and so I really started to think about it. I'm like, nothing. I don't have anything to prove. But when I was an undergrad, I had a chip on my shoulder. When yeah. I was in my master's program, I chipped my shoulder. I was in my PhD, I had my chip on my shoulder. And even after I finished, I still had a little chip on my shoulder. And, you know, hey, I still have a chip on my shoulder. I'm not having a lie. But mm -hmm. it's not the same response now yeah. that I did, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. It's, it's like, okay, I have a chip. You know, let me do something else. Let me go for a bike ride. So, like, when I bike. I try to bike 100 miles at a time. It's like that, that mental mind shift. Like I literally bike 100 miles just because I feel that's a good way to burn my energy and allow me to think. And, and push yourself, right? And push my, yeah. Like last I, year, I did three indoor centuries on the Peloton bike. And oh my, my, gosh. Uh, my longest was 120 miles in one sitting. And so mm -hmm. I just push myself. Like I, I tell my boys, look, if we're going to do something, we're going to finish it, period. Like yes. it doesn't matter how long it takes, but we're going to get it. And my son... Uh, oldest will be eight in August last year. He did uh, 15 miles on his own biking. Oh, my gosh. At, at, at seven. So, you know, again, like I had nothing to prove anybody. I'm just very uh, blessed to be where I'm at and the experiences I've had. And, you know, um, that's why my wife and I also wrote Dr. Dyslexia do the, uh, the kids books because we wanted to make sure that not just kids with dyslexia saw themselves as being, you know, able, right? Again, the mind shift changing it. We wanted kids to look like me. We wanted to let them know that, hey, you know, you are valued in the literature. We want to make sure that um, it was culturally responsive. And 
I'm very unapologetic about the work I do, particularly when it comes to young black boys, because I mean, I'm, I'm black, you know, my mm -hmm. kids are black. So I want to make sure that the things that I was not exposed to in a K-12 system doesn't happen to all kids. Mm, yes. Particularly kids look like me too. I want to make sure that their voices, their experiences are honored. So that's why we wrote the book and we wanted to make sure that it just, you know, gave them hope, right? It Absolutely. Yep. It's doing that for sure. And you're right. It's by giving these examples of um, people who have overcome the different challenges that individuals find that hope it's in other people's stories, right? It could be a story like a fictional story, or it could be a real story. I remember when my nephew, he used to watch uh, Henry Danger and actor Jace Norman came out and shared that he had dyslexia. I mean, my nephew's really into sports. So we were like, oh my gosh, we hope like Patrick Mahomes or, or LeBron or somebody comes out and says that like they, we were hoping because that was his connection point. It's like someone who I look to or someone who I like, or someone who I like respect what they do. Wow. They're like me too. And you did that so well through a fictional character because with Dr. Dyslexia do, uh, this is a superhero and you actually show up whenever you do readings in a superhero costume. Do you still do that? Yes, I do it. Yes, I do it. The costume is kind of outdated, but I still do it. I mean, okay, you know, okay, okay. But yeah. uh, so tell us a little more about why you decided to incorporate a superhero costume. I mean, I know the kids love this, right? So that that's a fun part of it. But why was that important to incorporate into the story or even into your visits? Uh, you know, my wife is really the author. And so she really just felt like she wanted to have that superhero theme, you know, to give yeah. students hope. But then, you know, just dressing up. I don't know. You know, it's just, it, I think it just it gives, gives kids hope. Right. I know I keep saying that, but it just, I don't put smiles on their face, you know, it lightens they, everything. Yeah. I mean, here I am a 44 year old guy wearing a, a tight speedo outfit. Like it's cool. I don't care. People are like you're too old to be dressing up. I'm like, look, if it makes a young kid or a, a teacher smile, then I've done my job for the day. Like that's it. So I think, you know, just being vulnerable, right. Cause I mean, who's going to do a, a keynote or a book visit or book read, you know, in an outfit. Like, I don't care. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's no big deal to me. You know, it's just, again, I think, and it also shows students that you can, it's okay to be creative, right? Like creativity, right? It's okay to think outside the box, you know, those things, the mental mind shift. It's okay to be different. It's okay to come in with a superhero outfit at first. It doesn't match because like, it literally didn't match at all. I was wearing a, a pink one with some rundown house blue shoes. <laughs> And students would be like, Dr. Wait, they're like, this doesn't match what you're wearing versus what's on the cover. They're like, <laughs> wait, why? Why is it red on there, but pink? And why are you have these raggedy shoes? But, but like, so they again, they were becoming critical thinking. That's just fine. Like, I didn't, you know, yes, I yeah, you know, yes. You know, sometimes we think of disabilities as hindrances, but I also see that disabilities help you to cultivate very specific skills based on whatever the disability could be. And then it, it can become an advantage, right? The disability turns into an advantage because you've learned things in a different way that other people may not. You've been exposed to different ways of thinking. And more importantly, if you have anything to overcome, whether it's a, a disability in how you're learning, whether it's a physical disability, if you attack that thing with a growth mindset, you are winning. You are absolutely winning because you've decided to show up for the challenge. You are putting in work, which is going to create new neural pathways in your brain, which then helps you to rewire your brain for the, the positive thinking and the healthy actions that are going to help you. 
But more importantly, it's also helping you to build your confidence. And you said this earlier, because once you had that key unlock this thing that felt like it was holding you back, your confidence grew. And that comes with trying new things, not trying new things just because it's hard for you, but trying new things because you are pushing yourself outside of your comfort zone. You're thinking outside of the box. You're, you're being creative. It actually helps to build our confidence in general. Like everybody needs this. So it sounds like your focus on health and wellness. I mean, biking a hundred miles is absolutely crazy, but that that's a challenge that helps you to develop a growth mindset and helps you to show up with this different level of awareness and confidence for whatever the task is at hand. Are there any other ways where you challenge yourself so that you can continue to develop a growth mindset and, you know, meet these challenges head on? I mean, you know, every day is a new day with new challenges, right? Uh, so besides biking, you know, or trying to pick up my speed, you know, or just, any, any things, uh, you know, that would just allow me to grow as a father, a husband, just a human, right? Anything that's going to allow me to just build confidence, right? Because in the days that when I say we myself is that I can't make progress if I don't believe in myself. Like I need to start within myself. And if there's some things that I need to work on that are stopping me from growing, well, I need to work on those things. And those things might be very uncomfortable, right? And one of my good friends said this to me, when we try to think about the growth mindset, right? It's like looking in the mirror. All we have is ourselves. Like we can't run because every time we turn around, we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. Like no matter, you know, so I think looking in the mirror and really doing some self analysis of myself and thinking about things that I need to do to improve myself will only allow me to become more confident in my abilities to do whatever I do. But I have to start with myself. You know, I got to start with, you know, who am I? You know, what, what am I looking to get out of this or what, what am I looking to give to, right? Because it's not always about just internally. It's about also taking what we've learned and giving out and helping people. And so I think it's a mixture of a little bit of everything. And I think the biggest one for me, like everyone has different situations, but for me, it's, it's being at peace, right? Yes. Like internal peace. Yeah. I listen to Enya. I meditate. I do Pilates. Yeah. I do yoga. I do Ramad, I stretch, like I allow my mind to go free. But I think just having that internal peace is something that I think um, it's not really valued or talked about, particularly in spaces of, you know, special education mm -hmm. or even with males in general. You have to be this tough yes. guy. You have to be, you know, I have to be prideful. No, man, like if you're going to cry, <laughs> cry. Like if you're soft, you're soft. Big deal. Get over it. Like it's OK, yeah. you know, like. It's not that big a deal if you cry in front of people. It's not that big a deal if you have a a, a, a sense. If you feel emotions. Yeah, it's no big deal. You're human. I mean, yes, yes. you're going to leave the earth with emotions. You came to this earth with emotions. So it's one of those things. So, um, yes, yes. Yeah. So it sounds like you might even have another book in you. <laughs> You're speaking very directly, which is true. Another way that you can take what you're learning and share it with others. I agree so much. I'm grateful that you have taken your journey and your experience of how to find the right tools, how to thrive even um, being dyslexic. And you're sharing that with so many. I thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And big shout out to your wife, co-authoring and, and coming up with Dr. Dyslexia too. What's her name? Ashura Robinson, Ashura. Here we go. Power yeah. couple already. I love it. I hope you all are working on another series of books because what you've done so far has been absolutely amazing. So Dr. Sean Robinson, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
If people want to learn more about you, the work you're doing, book you to speak, all of that good stuff, where can they find and connect with you? Um, they go to my website, drshawnarobinson.com, where they can go to the Dr. Dyslexia Dude. So either one of those two. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you again for joining us today. Wishing you so much success and well wishes for everything that you're doing in the future. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. This has been In the Details. If you like the show, tell a friend. For more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcasts.